0: Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson
1: And I am Paul R. Henlicky.
0: Today on the show, we are going to be addressing the life and thought of Thomas Jefferson, theologian. You heard that right. Thomas Jefferson, our third president, one of the major drafters of the Declaration of Independence, a passionate advocate of religious and all other kinds of liberty, and an owner of over 600 slaves, only two two of which he manumitted in the course of his lifetime. And we will be addressing the question of Sally Hemings. So, You may be asking, why on earth are we thinking about this dude as a theologian? And why do we think he's worth talking about? Well, let me go first, Dad. Well, a couple of years ago, when my family was visiting your dad, or, you know, ours, uh, your homestead in Virginia, um, Andrew and I took a couple of days off. And as part of that, we went to Monticello, which is not too far from where you live. We'd never been there. And we're just kind of intrigued. And I have to say, the intrigue about... The person of Thomas Jefferson only grew in the course of our time there for um, all the reasons aforementioned that this amazing architect of the long you know, <laughs> Declaration of Independence that led to the longest lasting uh, and in some ways first democratic republic in the world um, could have had this enormous plantation with all these slaves and simply live with the contradiction. And the more I dug into him, the more I was just baffled, to be honest. And that's not an unfamiliar feeling. As I've said before, our major interlocutors in this household are Martin Luther and Bartolome de las Casas, who are also men of simply impossible contradictions. Uh, but uh, in our case, we find that it, more of a demand to understand better than an excuse to dismiss. So for some time since that visit a few years ago, I've really wanted to spend a little bit more time just trying to get a handle on how how. how. <laughs> So that's what we're going to be trying to unpack in this episode. And of course, for both of us as Americans, uh, Jefferson and his legacy of both related to liberty and related to religion is is simply uh, data points that we have to deal with one way or another. How about you, Dad? You are equally interested in taking up this topic.
1: Yeah, I am. Um, I've, I've spent time in my life on and off. Uh, with the question of American theology, and uh, J- Jonathan Edwards, we should do a podcast on him sometime, and Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King Jr. are uh, uh, are all, you know, stars in this particular heaven. I should also mention Reinhold Niebuhr, who a mayor seventy years ago when I was born. Was considered America's theologian. So great was his influence. Uh, so I've been long interested in the what happens to Christian theology under the conditions of the American experiment in constitutional democracy. Uh, but Jefferson, in particular, as I agree with you, he's a tough nut to crack. Uh, I've been richly informed by by the scholar Joseph Ellis. And particularly, he wrote a intriguing book called American Sphinx, the character of Thomas Jefferson. A sphinx, you know, what on in the world is that guy really thinking? He's got this Im- imperturbable face, which does not reveal what's going on on the inside. And so Ellis wrote a book, uh, uh, really uh, a very good scholarly book, Tracing Uh, the written record that Jefferson left behind in trying to unveil his character. But recently, just a year ago, you remember during the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, protests and uh, some of the more extreme manifestations included a lot of iconoclasm, particularly the the, um, uh, attacks on statues Uh, Some of these statues of Confederate war heroes, uh, you know, I admit to some sympathy too. here in Virginia, the enormous statue of Robert E. Lee mounted on his steed in the capital city of Richmond was removed by a legal process by the government of the Commonwealth. But elsewhere in the country, um, There were um, basically mobs rioting and desecrating or trying to destroy statues of figures like Thomas Jefferson, Uh, even Abraham Lincoln, surprisingly enough, Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt. These were targets of uh, a kind of mob action uh, for reasons we'll we'll talk about. And uh, like most Lutherans, I'm not terribly sympathetic with iconoclasm, though I recognize that icons uh, sometimes have to change with the times. Anyway, so I, I think that in the last year or two, uh, for a lot of reasons, America's constitutional democracy has been under assault by enemies, foreign and domestic. And it's One of the kind of backhanded questions for today is whether America's constitutional democracy is worth defending and preserving without gainsaying the question of, uh, of improvement.
0: Okay, well, those are some deep issues, and we'll see if we can solve all of America's constitutional and liberty problems in the next hour. That would be a good and perfectly More power to reasonable us. goal to set. Okay. I Just as a way of getting into the topic, one thing one cannot help but notice in looking at literature on Thomas Jefferson is there are two kind of um, extreme approaches that I think we have to avoid both of. And the one is the, he should have known better. And the one is the, he couldn't have known better. Uh, and both of them somehow fallacy. So, on the one hand, you know, it's so obvious that Thomas Jefferson should have known that what he was doing was so entirely impossible, and he had to get rid of his slaves, that anything else that comes from him is, by association, poison tainted, and has to be thoroughly rejected. I think that's the iconoclastic uh, response to, you know, burn it all down and, and, and the whole American experiment that went with it. Um, and the other is the kind of um, adoring, fawning, founding father cult, which is either says that he he didn't either really do anything that wrong, that the those who um, just flatly deny his having had um, an ongoing sexual relationship with one of his slaves fall in that camp. But also there's kind of the softer version of it, which is just that, well, you know, we have to think historically and people then didn't know better. So, you know, we can kind of excuse him on those grounds. And um, I just wanted you actually, Dad, to bring in your understanding of the retrospective fallacy, because I think that will be a helpful methodological guide for going forward in this conversation.
1: Yeah, more popularly known as Monday morning quarterbacking. <laughs> uh, the, the retrospective fallacy is taking uh, uh, the knowledge of the outcome of events that we have uh, from uh, a, a perspective later in time uh, as if historical actors could have known what we know in hindsight uh, whenever you evaluate a historical personage you have to remember that no finite human being knows the future not even the son of man knows that according to the new testament it is reserved to god the father alone <laughs> so y- real historical people constantly have to risk their lives uh, into ventures into the unknown future. Uh, And they don't know the outcome of events, and, and there's a gamble inherent in whatever they do in face of that unknown future. So if you want to appreciate, both critically and positively appreciate, any historical person, you have to look at reality from their perspective. You have to get inside of their position in time and space and see how things look from there. Uh, That does not mean that you're going to condone uh, misdeeds as they become uh, evident in the record and so forth, but it means that you're trying to find human understanding of those concrete misdeeds uh, or failures uh, and so forth. So that's, that's basically uh, the uh, point of avoiding the fallacy of our uh, Monday morning knowledge of how the football game turned out.
0: Yeah, I've often thought how um, every World War II movie you watch, you know how it's going to end. <laughs> and it's really hard to like put yourself in the position of, they don't know it's going to be over in 1945. They really have no idea it's going to be over in 1945. Um, maybe, Maybe late in 1944, they've got some inkling, but not earlier on, so... Yeah. Okay. Well. Um. So the two kind of main areas we're gonna focus on are Jefferson's. Uh, both case. Ha- both of them have to do with his his theorizing and even theologizing about liberty and the one as relates to the slavery question and the other as it relates to religious freedom and then Jefferson's own um, highly unorthodox <laughs> religious views. But uh, to get there, we need to just back up slightly and spend some time with John Locke.
1: Indeed, Sarah. But before we proceed, I just want to make a, a couple of other more comments. Okay. Um, you, you said one way of uh, not taking Jefferson seriously is the perspective that um, just dismisses him with contempt. He should have known better, right? Um, uh, but in fact, when we look at Jefferson as a theologian, By his own admission, he did know better. Let's listen to this passage from his notes on Virginia. And I'm quoting Jefferson. He wrote Nothing is more certainly written in the book of fate than that these people, the slaves, are to be free. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. That, considering numbers, nature, and natural means only, a revolution of the wheel of fortune and exchange of situation is among possible events. The Almighty has no attribute which can take sides with us slaveholders in such a contest. So I would submit, at least when Jefferson is reflecting theologically. He did know better. And that's part of that sphinx-like or contradictory character that we want to explore today.
0: Let me just comment on that passage, of course. I was struck by it, too, because it's it's earlier in his career. It's already from, I think, 1785 that he writes this, and he lives till... 1826. And um, I, I, I think in previous podcasts, even you've alluded to that passage. So when I found it, I, w- I was very struck by it. And it's even preceded by his reflection on how corrupting it is of the character of the white slaveholders and their children to be in this position. He knows it's fundamentally disordered to have that kind of absolute power over others. The problem is, he never says it again. <laughs> There's at the, in the very like last letter of his life, he again again, says something to the effect of, you know, uh, I, you know, I I haven't been really public about this, but everyone knows that I think, you know, it would be better not to have slavery and, but, you know, it's not for our time, hopefully for the future, but that's a very thin record in his vast corpus of writings. So I, I don't even, I don't know what to make of that. Even why, why so little
1: two other data points here, just briefly. Jefferson did try to, in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, to lay the blame for slavery in America on King George III, uh, in the process uh, uh, excusing the slaveholders who were victims of British commercialism. <laughs> you know, but he did try to do he did try to do that, and of course. The Southern states didn't, wouldn't tolerate, colonies wouldn't tolerate it, and it never made it into the final draft of the Declaration. And this note from Virginia, Jefferson included in his late in life autobiography, Um, he did, he actually did, and he wanted to make it clear what his moral stance was on the issue by putting it there. But again, as you said, uh, uh, he didn't do much about it in his lifetime. And um, why he was paralyzed is one of the questions we have to explore. Yeah.
0: Okay. There was one other thing you wanted and to... The second,
1: okay. Yeah, the other little thing I just wanted to mention is that it's not simply a question of slavery. This is a segue to John Locke. Uh, we know that Jefferson had studied the second uh, treatise of government by John Locke. There's not a more elegant argument against the morality of slave keeping than John Locke makes in his pay on to human liberty. So the argument against slavery as such pre-exists Jefferson by a century, and he knows it in reading John Locke. Uh, the peculiar problem of American slavery was its racial basis. That that is part of the problem here. It's not simply liberty versus slavery. It's the question of whether people of dark skin uh, are equally human with us uh, white people. That's the issue that uh, Jefferson, uh, I think, is part of the issue that paralyzes Jefferson, as I'll indicate with another quotation somewhat later.
0: Yes. Well, and of course, that is much less of a pressing issue for John Locke, who is, is he Scottish? Am I remembering that correctly? He's in the British Isles. So there's obviously not extensive race-based slavery in the British Isles altogether. So Locke can know that, that uh, slavery is wrong and Jefferson can agree with it, but the circumstances surrounding their experience of that problem are different.
1: Right. Okay, let's move on to Locke, sir. What do you want to say about John Locke?
0: Well, I, I you um sent me something that you had written about him that I found really helpful and I have to say again as um a person of the 21st century now and as a Lutheran I had um both admiring and mixed feelings about the basis of the religious toleration, which I I do very consciously endorse and value and wish and work to see preserved. Um, In fact, if anything, it has become more clear to me how important it is to defend religious liberty and liberty regarding speech and so forth. But, um, the, the theological foundations of it are not necessarily the kind of theological foundations that I, you know, put forward. I don't know. You know you know this better than I do. Why don't, why don't you unfold it from here with that kind of teaser?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think everyone should take the time to read Locke's Letter on Toleration. It won't take about 45 minutes to read it, and uh, it's a really a classic text, and it deserves attention. Uh, And Locke is demonstrably writing from his own Protestant Puritan um, uh, background, uh, full of disgust at the wars of religion and Christians in Europe persecuting other Christians. And the letter on toleration, you know, rises right out of this cultural disaster of Europe. The 17th century wars of religion, um, which did so much, as Locke painfully uh, states, to discredit the religion of the Prince of Peace, a lot of the uh, literati, a lot of the enlightened people of the 17th and 18th century, uh, just said, if this is the religion of the Prince of Peace, who needs it? We need to refound. Uh, government on a non-religious basis, and so that was part of the whole uh, uh, trajectory that began, that culminates in contemporary secularism as an ideology. Uh, but going back to Locke himself, as a Puritan Protestant, he is just—you can see—anguished at the at the spectacle of Christians persecuting fellow Christians. And he basically comments that the Turks, the Muslim Turks, must be uh, uh, laughing all the way uh, uh, through their ranks at this spectacle of Christian self-destruction. The other thing I think you want to say about John Locke um, is that uh, and this is somewhat controversial. A lot of scholars still lump Locke together with Thomas Hobbes. I see John Locke as being very, very different from Thomas Hobbes. And I th- they're lumped together under the idea of social contract. Uh, but if you actually read, and I think you did read Second Treatise of Government, what you see in Second Treatise of Government is that in place of Locke's state of nature, which is a war of all against all, Uh, Locke basically uh, paints a a picture of Adam and Eve in paradise Uh, and uh, talks about uh, the uh, family and the uh, uh, domestic economy and and use of of uh, of, uh, of the fruits of nature and so forth. His state of nature is, in other words, is fit for human habitation. Uh, It's fit for human society. It's fit for intergenerational relationships. Uh, And it's at peace. And it's only on this basis that later on, as the human race increases and becomes more complex, uh, that uh, people come together to surrender only so much liberty uh, as is needed to secure their remaining liberties. So social contract in that way.
0: What struck me in reading this um, second treatise on government was um, Locke actually lived in a world where there was a level of control um, on a, a social, maybe like closer, closer to home, personal, social, familial church and maybe local government level than that um, popular entertainments in America pretend is like how it always is now, but it actually isn't. It's like the only story we know to tell is, you know, oppressive culture, family, etc, and breaking free and becoming your own person. And clearly Locke lived in a world where that was actually a much more immediate danger. And the wars of religion were exactly that. And so what he's arguing for is true liberty of conscience that actually you know your your family and your government do have some say over what you do with your body and to a certain extent what you do with your labor like they have a right to tax it and so forth but he really makes a very strong argument that in nobody can own your conscience but you it is really uh you know and I think this is the the puritan side it's really down to you and God and I don't think for him it means that you do not accept um, information or or catechism or anything from anybody else. But it's it's much more of, of trying to like stake out the right of the conscience um, in a new way before God in the, in the face of all of this violence. And like you said, we're at such a different place now where, you know, the defense of individual conscience on one level has become such a cliche that it doesn't really touch the real stirring ex- existential problems of our time, like the extreme atomization and the loss of family and connectedness and community altogether. But I would say at the same time, we see a sort of terrifying reassertion of the rights of the state over all matters of life. Um, and and maybe also um, uh online digital technologies, not um, in the same aggressive way, but more insinuatingly getting control of our souls. And so in, in that respect, you said that even though there's a lot of problematic things about Locke's, you know, um, developing the idea of individualism and, and where it would go, I still found it quite refreshing. And the the warning against the state becoming all in all as the only solution to... um. Person to person warfare and the need of um, ongoing accountability of conscience to stand in the way of that.
1: Yeah. And I would say, Sarah, that danger that you're talking about, that's really the fruit of a kind of Hobbesian uh, vision of the state of nature as being one of perpetual conflict that can only have peace by the absolute authority assigned to the political sovereign who enforces a peace upon the state of nature and and thus creates a state of society. So I I would argue that that danger is Hobbesian, not Lockean. Anyway, but I don't want to get down in the weeds on that. I I just read this morning a rather lengthy analysis of uh, contemporary China's persecution of Christians. Uh, And we see that what has happened in Hong Kong uh, where there were, you know, six or seven hundred thousand uh, Christians in Hong Kong and, and very active churches, very influential in uh, education and how since the Communist Party's takeover of the, um, of Hong Kong, these uh, this uh, kind of this exalted position of Christianity in Hong Kong is being steadily undermined and how COVID uh, has been used to shut down public worship in Christian churches for over two years now, and so forth and so on. And that kind of leads me to this, uh, it's kind of a leap, and I want to be careful with this. In, in the letter on toleration, Locke um, made one exception uh, religiously to toleration. He said atheists should not be tolerated. Now, that sounds kind of, to us today, that sounds, and it is indeed um, uh, a dangerous thought, because uh, 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 persecuting atheists would be uh, repulsive ethically and spiritually. But why did Locke at that time in history say that he would exclude atheists from toleration? Answer, because the privileged role he assigns to human conscience refers to God as judge. And if you take away God as judge, he says everything is dissolved. And so the very existence of human conscience as something that can actually effectively govern your behavior depends for Locke on belief in God. It's, I just think that's that's quite interesting. And of course, the modern 20th century totalitarians all kind of converge on this Lockean insight. When the state becomes Leviathan, when the state becomes the all, when the state becomes the uh, God incarnate on the earth, that's what Lo- Hobbes called the Leviathan. When that kind of atheism divinizes the state, then conscience is done with. There's no no appeal to heaven. There's no appeal to heaven against the authority of the state.
0: Well, you positively need to get rid of God because that might give people some angle to resist the all-encompassing power of the state.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Right. And 20th century witnesses like Václav Havel and uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn would have said the same.
0: Right, right. So that's a, a, a very painful confirmation of that insight many centuries later. So I think then what we want to do then is is take this insight that, that for the, the philosophical governmental milieu that... Um, Locke lays down and Jefferson follows, there is a necessary and intrinsic connection between personal liberty, flourishing society, and just governments, and that um, all three of those are are interrelated. But the personal liberty thing absolutely has to be defended in in some way, um, maybe not ultimately but in some way it is the wellspring from which the flourishing society and the the just government spring. You can't compromise on that and still have those other two take effect. So it's from there then that I want us to look at both the slavery question and um, Jefferson's religious views. So to to go back to the quote earlier, if Jefferson knows perfectly well that slavery is noxious and that it's not as bad for the slaveholders as for the slaves, but it's certainly morally corrupting of the slaveholders then um why <laughs> why uh, I have one provisional answer at least in Thomas Jefferson's own case which is that he was an immensely curious man who liked stuff. And on one level, I completely understand that. He had a tremendous library when the original Library of Congress burned. um, It was his personal library that was bought to replace it and become the seed of today's Library of Congress. He loved was completely fascinated by early developing science. In fact, I found this rather charming letter when he discusses hot air balloons. Um, he had all sorts of scientific implements and um, bought beautiful furniture, artworks, um, statuary. And Monticello itself is simply a wonderful place, as long as you don't look out over the slave quarters. But the the setting and the building are gorgeous. He was a man of great taste and curiosity and, you know, really used his his brain and his intellect to the fullest to develop that. The problem was he could not afford any of it. He was always a, an um, <laughs> agriculturalist. He was rather down on industry and, and some of the way our, um, our early American experiment was shaped by his and the South's um, decided preference for agriculture over industry, which Proved not to serve them well in the end, and also proved to be one of the reasons why slaveholding was economically desirable for so long. But Jefferson could not pay for his hobby of curiosity. And in fact, um, when well, we were visiting at Monticello, they said one of the reasons he did not manumit his slaves is because he literally could not afford to. They were the capital for his enormous debts. And when he died, his children basically had to sell everything to satisfy his debts. Uh, Uh, because I know otherwise it would have passed on to them. So um, debt is like the oldest human story. It's the reason we even have writing. And I was disturbed and fascinated to discover that um, the inability to manage one's indebtedness could allow someone like Jefferson to ignore what clearly was present in his conscience and keep 600 people enslaved as his collateral in order to fund that habit.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's probably um, a real good explanation of the trap that Jefferson was in. Um, just uh, Joseph Ellis has, Sarah, this comment about uh, that uh, I already mentioned that kind of sleight of hand by which Jefferson tried to blame the slave system on the King of England, uh, uh, and let me just read this from Ellis. I'm quoting, the truth was much messier. Established slave owners in the Tidewater region favored an end of imports because their own plantations were already well stocked and new arrivals only reduced the value of their own slave populations. (laughs) With regard to slavery itself, Jefferson's formulation in the draft to the Declaration made great polemic sense, but were historical and intellectual nonsense. It ab- it absolved slave owners like himself from any responsibility or complicity in the establishment of an institution that was clearly at odds with the values on which the newly independent America was based. This was less a clarion call to end slavery than an invitation to wash one's hands of the matter." End quote, end quote. What do you think of that?
0: Yeah, <laughs> right on. That That's exactly what it is. And uh, I mean, it, it always sounds so cynical to say, follow the money. But, um, you know, it's so true. <laughs> and and debt, like you said, debt is, is one of the oldest human realities. It's actually why it's an important atonement motif.
1: Well, this, this, this should lead us to a kind of a discussion of what, what is called false consciousness. Um, self-deception, in which you uh, create a kind of a fiction uh, to uh, to cover over your own false relationship uh, to the to to the brass tacks economic realities that uh, which locate you in society and so forth, <clears throat> and. Jefferson had this streak of of utopianism in him, which served uh, uh, to uh, distance him personally from complicity in the corrupt, what he knew on one level of his conscience to be the corruptions of the slave system. Uh, uh, Here's again Ellis on this matter. I'm quoting, Jefferson's personal cravings for a world in which all behavior was voluntary and therefore all coercion unnecessary, where independence and equality never collided, were the sources of all authority, where the sources of all authority were invisible because they had already been internalized. Efforts on the part of scholars to determine whether Jefferson's prescriptive society was fundamentally individualistic or communal can never reach clo- closure, because within the Jeffersonian utopia, such choices do not need to be made; they are recon- they reconciled themselves naturally. That is, by appeal to nature, and nature's God. So here you have Jefferson kind of with this view that if we could just get back in touch with natural human reality, we would be like Adam and Eve in paradise. He skips the whole fall (laughs) part and the exile from paradise.
0: That is really, actually, that just pulled it all together for me. Yes, Jefferson was a utopian who simply lived in denial of realities that he didn't like. And I mean, that's actually the debt is an expression of that, right? I, I am a country gentleman with immense scientific and literary curiosity. Therefore, I am entitled to all of these things. Therefore, I will buy them on credits that I can never pay back. I mean, it kind of goes all the way up and all the way down. And then, you know, to, to add to this, the other, you know, major troubling piece of the slavery aspect of his life is, um, and this is something I also learned when I was at Monticello, as is well known, he had a a concubine, let's call her, that at least gives her some uh, historic, um, placidness, um, named Sally Hemings, um, and with whom he had six children, four survived to adulthood. And, um, not only that, but this, um, relationship began when he was serving as a a, a minister in France on behalf of the United States. And um, Sally came over with his daughter, who he wanted to have with him. And Sally was um, minimum 14, maximum 16. And Jefferson was in his 40s. And um, apparently, he offered he, she had the option to stay in France, and she would have simply been de jure free if she had stayed in France. Uh, one of her brothers was already there and, and stayed behind. But she went back to Virginia with him and um, on the condition that he would um, release uh, to freedom any children of their relationship, which uh, um, he did in his will when they reached 21. They were they were indeed set free. That was after his death. Uh, this is so sick and perplexing on so many levels, not least of all that she agreed to return with him. Did she agree? We we have no way of knowing. That's all super disturbing on so many levels. But this is the kind of crowning glory of it all. She was in fact Jefferson's wife's half-sister. They had the same father. Jefferson's wife grew up in a slave-holding family, and her father was active among his female slaves, and so this daughter he had was her half-sister, and apparently she was the spitting image. I mean, they looked just like each other. They were extremely similar. They were both very beautiful, and Sally herself, as the phrase goes, could have passed for white. So, <laughs> just like... This is a um, major Sigmund Freud moment for me, to be honest. You know? <laughs> to to have your your wife over again, but much younger, and now your slave. Wow, super weird and and disturbing. But what also complicates the the larger picture here is, of course, the slave relationship obtains. But um, you know, obviously the the major issue of American slavery is the race base, and here. That seems to be much muted, and in fact, all of Jefferson's children by her, when they were set free, simply entered into white society, and nobody ever knew that um, they had uh, uh, African ancestors um, a few generations back. I don't know what to do with that, except to be grossed out and horrified.
1: But how contemporary it is. Case in point, Jeffrey Epstein.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's not like this goes away. I don't. I don't mean it goes away. Definitely not. Um, it's it's trying to put that. Well, I think this is when we finally have to get down to Jefferson's religion because Jefferson creates a religion that cannot possibly accommodate what Jefferson himself did, and maybe that's exactly what he wanted.
1: Yeah. Um... maybe religious tolerance was something he thought would get him off the hook. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I, I I think it's a more serious question than that.
0: No, I don't, I don't mean it that way. I I, I mean more like, Jefferson lives in a world, like like from that quote from Ellis, you said, in which everything is voluntary and free and there are no trade-offs. In Jefferson's Bible, which we'll get to, uh, Jesus never forgives because there's no need of forgiveness, because people are enlightened and do the right thing. Jefferson created a, a perfect moral religious world in which there is no blood and guts and death and betrayal and horrifying things that you do in your own personal history that you can't distance yourself from and can't ever justify. So I, I think in that respect, I think there's a connection between the darkness that Jefferson is sitting on top of and the fake lightness, um, to use, I think in this context, unfortunate metaphors that he is is building up for his religious vision.
1: I think that this is uh, what we're discussing here is has contemporary relevance too for certain kinds of Christians in America who think that the United States is a Christian nation because the founding fathers were Christians. I think that's a very dubious claim historically. I think it's simply true that um, the form of government that emerged in the United States uh, is inherited from Christendom and its breakdown in the wars of religion. So, of course, there's lines of continuity you can draw uh, through John Locke in particular to the Christian past, to the Reformation, uh, and then subsequently the wars of religion and so forth. All of that comes into the DNA of American constitutional democracy. But in particular, Sarah, what I'd like to point out here is that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and it's it's a creedal line. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That if, there, if America has a credo, a shema, mm. that's it. Okay, <laughs> right. so Je- Jefferson writes that and it's in the DNA of the United States. But Jefferson... Had no patience for the constitutional congresses, the constitutional uh, debates that were pursued uh, by others. And he then took the ambassadorship to France during that period of constitution writing and was very little engaged in it. To be sure, when he returned, he insisted on the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the constitution. But But the whole system of constitutional checks and balances, including the great compromise with the southern colonies to institutionalize the slave system, Jefferson kind of washed his hands of that dirty business. He wasn't interested in it. And he left that to his fellow Virginia, uh, George Madison. Is that right, George Madison? Uh, James Madison. James Madison. James Madison, excuse me. and here, here again is Ellis on this uh, very question of Jefferson's hands-off attitude towards the process of the Constitution writing. He, he conceded, because of the size of the American population and the vastness of its territory, uh, some delegation of authority beyond the sovereign self, but he did so grudgingly. Over against Madison and the Constitutional Convention's Systems, system of checks and balances, Jefferson's best energy, quote, drew its inspiration from a utopian vision of the liberated individual resisting all external coercion and regor- regarding all forms of explicit government power as a necessary evil, close quote.
0: Wow, just <laughs> the blinders that someone who owns slaves and his wife's duplicate as a slave. <laughs> but you know, and that actually really makes a whole lot of sense that he, he did have this kind of tunnel vision for individual liberty and just refused to even engage with, it seems like on some level, the, the, the sorry state of actual humanity that needs these checks and balances and does bad things and needs to cope with that in some way.
1: And of course, the great tension in American society today is when various visions of of civil and human rights come into conflict with each other.
0: Right. And still plenty of utopianism all over the place, you know, a sort of rage that my utopia is being blocked by these evildoers. So if I can just um, get them under control or arrested or canceled or whatever, then finally, and I mean, that was always the communist vision too, right? Like the only thing that stands between us and our utopia is, a certain number of dead bodies. I mean, there's always that kind of impulse.
1: And that means for Jefferson, doesn't it, that um, there is no privilege to the antecedent traditions whatsoever. Uh, In in his correspondence with Madison, he composed this line. I set out on this ground, which I suppose to be self-evident, that the earth belongs... in usufruct, to the living. Now what that means is the past has no binding authority over us. Every new generation gets to make up uh, its own uh, reality, its own identity. The liberated individual is above all liberated from the past. America is to be a novo ordo seclorum, a new order of the ages. Now, given the fact that traditions can often be themselves poisonous, toxic, corrupted, and worthy of critique, as we've previously discussed, Sarah, anyone who thinks that they are free of the past and free of how the past is handed on in traditions Uh, is living in an illusion. This is simply not how historical human beings act, as I think I quoted Hans-George Gadamer to that effect in a couple of episodes ago, right? Um, So, and especially then when it comes to religion, Uh, Jefferson's liberated sovereign self uh, certainly owes nothing to any religious tradition.
0: Well then, let's let's wrap up now by looking at Jefferson's uh, reconceptualizing of Christianity. I uh, am um, later in life. He, in a number of letters with a, a few people he clearly trusts, he has some extended discussions of his perception of um the true Christian message, the true Jesus. Um, a uh, fascinating anticipation of the quest for the historical Jesus and um, textual study, and. And also his um, very clear admiration for Greek and Roman authors. In some respects, I would say there it's clear that he, he really does favor them over Christ. And by the time... I'll, I'll put links in our, our show notes to the letters. Um, you can look up and read on this for the listeners. But by the time you get to the end of it, um, you have the distinct feeling that um, Jefferson's love of Jesus is pure bigotry. Because there's actually no reason for Jesus to be the message carrier of the message that Jefferson wants to hear, (laughs) um, which I found fascinating because if you reduce Jesus to purely a moral teacher, um, he's not that distinctive. And in fact, um, Jefferson, at least twice that I found, suggests that, oh, unfortunately, Jesus was killed by the jealousy of the people around him and didn't have a chance to complete his system of the most beautiful set of morals we have ever seen. So <laughs> even as he elevates Jesus as the greatest moral teacher of all time, he subtly suggests that, you know, if he'd lived a little bit longer, he would have done a better job. Uh, but perhaps I, I myself can can assess what that would have been.
1: Right, and, and that's just the the typical gambit of the questers for the historical Jesus to re recreate a reconstructed Jesus that is the projection of their own wishes for what Jesus could have or should have been.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right? He, he's uh, frightfully, Jefferson is frightfully ignorant on actual Christian doctrine. He insists uh, repeatedly insists that Trinitarianism is to say that there are three gods. Um, he gives this... Um, rather comical description of Calvinism, which, you know, in its most degenerate and horrible form maybe is true. Um, but for me, actually, the, the most eye-opening thing I found in reading Jefferson's direct writings on Jesus and religion is how profoundly anti-Judaic he is. I, I'm, I'm still regularly astonished by how deep and pervasive the myth of the vindictive Old Testament God and, you know, backwards carnal Jews remains. But um, it's it's right here in Jefferson. Um, let me read you an, an extract um, I have here. Jesus' object was the reformation of some articles in the religion of the Jews as taught by Moses. That sect had presented for the object of their worship a being of terrific character, that means terrifying, not great, cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. Jesus instilled into his people the most anti, oh sorry, Moses instilled into his people the most antisocial spirit toward other nations. Jesus preached philanthropy and universal charity and benevolence. Jesus had to walk on the perilous confines of reason and religion, and a step to right or left might place him within the grip of the priests of the superstition, a bloodthirsty race, as cruel and remorseless as the being whom they represented as the family god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it just goes on. Like, there are so many just devastatingly horrible <laughs> remarks against Judaism, which he obviously holds in the profoundest contempt. And so for him, the the main thing about Jesus is that he just corrects all of these disgusting Jewish errors and sets people free for this um, to be a benevolent... he Jesus is a benevolent moralist, who have uh, created the outlines of a system of the most sublime morality which has ever fallen from the lips of man, the eloquence and fine imagination of Jesus. And you can imagine that Jesus would have been a scintillating and charming conversationalist at the Jefferson dinner table.
1: (laughs) So if uh, according to Nietzsche, Paul is Plato for the people, according to Jefferson, Jesus is Socrates for the people.
0: So what Jefferson turns to at the end of his life is a project that actually was not known widely until the 20th century, even though it's kind of famous now, what we call the Jefferson Bible. It's actually, he called it the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And we know about it because he mentions in his letters a couple times that basically he's taken a pair of scissors to several copies of the Bible in English, French, Latin, and Greek, and cut them out and then pasted them into a new blank journal and created his own version of the New Testaments. Um, yeah, but he never published it. He knew that people were suspicious of him. They hated his deism. In fact, apparently it was a big issue in his election to the presidency. People were as interested in his religion as as uh, people still are now in, in their president's religion. Um, but he kept it to himself. It kind of passed through various channels and was only rediscovered uh, somewhat ironically, in the early 20th century by a man named Cyrus Adler, a devout and observant Jew who read the reference in Jefferson's letters and managed to track it down through the generations and buy it for the Smithsonian. And then he had the text published, and it kind of had some uh, waves of popularity in the 20th century. Apparently Unitarian Universalists really like it. But, um, Basically, Jefferson thought it was entirely self-evident which part was the genuine benevolent system of morals from Jesus and what was purely the accretions of, well, you know, now that, you know, it wasn't the Jews anymore. Now it was the, you know, the power-hungry priests of, of the early early Catholicism, as we, we call it now, who, you know, dumped back on top of Jesus all of these fantastical bits about his miracles and walking on water and... um forgiving sins. Jefferson cuts out every reference to Jesus, um, forgiving sins, as well as all the miracles. And he, he even says he found the the project of doing so obvious and easy. It was just entirely obvious which st- stuff was fantastical, fake, and later, and which was genuine to Jesus. His <laughs> sublime confidence is really amazing. Um, though, uh, Weirdly enough, he he includes the bit about the woman with seven husbands in the resurrection and Jesus' assertion that God is the God of the living, not the dead, and he includes the apocalyptic stuff about the second coming, but he drops the Last Supper. Um, so it's it's very bizarre. <laughs> what I found um, very insightful in, in a book I, I read about it, the, the scholar menso said that um, the problem for Jefferson in the end is that well, I don't maybe Jefferson didn't see it. For someone looking at Jefferson's project is so he just cuts out everything fantastical. But once you've done that and stripped everything out of the story, there is absolutely no reason for the reaction against Jesus that leads to his death. It is completely inexplicable why the man would have ever been worth anyone's trouble of crucifying or betraying to the Romans to get him crucified. There's nothing offensive about him. All the stuff that makes his story Plausible and actually significant enough to carry down through the ages is all the stuff that Jefferson took out. So in a way, Jefferson negates his own project without realizing that he's doing it. But I I found that um, you know, kind of maybe one of those necessary experiments that has to be has to happen to uh, to show up the truth that um, unless this so-called fantastical stuff is included in the full account of Jesus, then his passion is inexplicable in every way. There's no way he would have been worth the trouble.
1: I think this, Sarah, connects with your earlier insight about the anti-Judaism that animates Jefferson. Uh, Basically, much of the problem with the quest for the historical Jesus is its attempt systematically to separate the human historical Jesus from the one he addressed as Abba Father, namely the God of Israel, and whose kingdom Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And so all of the ethics of Jesus are not, you know, Socrates for the people. They are eschatological ethics. They are invoking the coming of the reign of the Lord, um, uh, who has been known from the time of Abraham uh, to the Jewish people as the God of the covenant. And that goes back to the beginning, the fabulous events of the exodus from Egypt, and periodically through the Lord's history with his people Israel. One has these fabulous events uh, of uh, what we call, in plain language, miracles or wonders. So if you extract the God of Israel, and if you extract the uh, episodes of the fabulous what you have left is really a cipher nothing a, a nothing that you can fill in with your own content
0: mm. which weirdly in a way is the whole problem of jefferson himself the sphinx <laughs> like what what's really going on there well I, I, as i as, as i've already said earlier to me what jefferson does is produces a religion that suits his utopianism of how it wants to be but has zero power to address the life that he actually led and the entanglements he actually suffered and his own moral inability to act on his own better insights. Uh, he might like the looks of his religion and be intellectually delighted by it, but it can't solve his own problem. He has no no power, no resource to address it and, and therefore not... In a, an inability to address the wider questions that his own life poses, which is this intolerable existence of slavery and race-based slavery at that within the nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal.
1: You know, Sarah, at the end of his, well, actually for a very long time, since their times together in the revolution, Jefferson maintained a correspondence with Samuel Adams. And... Um, According to Adams, the American Revolution uh, was, and I'm quoting Ellis here, a responsible and positive a commitment to new forms of political discipline, not just an irresponsible and negative assertion of separation from England based on the seductive promise of unlimited liberation. And as Jefferson had returned, now, end quote, had returned from uh, France and the French Revolution and so forth, and his head full of French revolutionary ideas, Adams developed a criticism of Jefferson's utopianism. Here I'm quoting again. It was Jefferson's style of political thinking was much indebted to the invention of the word ideology, Because Jefferson harbored a set of attractive ideals, like his belief in human perfection or social equality, which he mistakenly believed could be implemented politically in this world merely because they existed in his head, Adams said, this is the French way of thinking about politics as an a priori and implicitly utopian habit of mind that, as Adams recalled, he and Jefferson had encountered in pre-revolutionary Paris. Adams was essentially accusing Jefferson of embracing attractive dreams and then condemning all critics of his naivete as enemies of the goals themselves, when in fact they were only criticizing their illusory character. It was the classic criticism of an idealist by a realist, so Adams. So uh, this is for me, Sarah, a kind of segue both to Lincoln, and uh, I hope in sometime yet in the season an episode on Reinhold Niebuhr, the great twentieth-century author of Christian realism.
0: Yeah, I, it's clear reading Jefferson um, that. He, he does not have the resources internally to address the problems. Um, as, as someone who has a, a vision and commitment to liberty and to someone who is just simply immensely curious. And, you know, for all the, the criticisms I've said, one of the reasons Jefferson is an attractive figure is just because he was so dazzlingly interested in everything and really cared about everything. He had a, a genuinely expansive scope of interest. And, you know, that that is the kind of person who makes a scintillating conversation partner. Um, but the... That, that yeah, there's that fundamental unwillingness to face up to reality, and then cutting out any resource, uh, religious or or spiritual or ethical, that would give him the strength, the ability to face up to the darkness. Um, that was you know the the shadow side of his his own life.
1: But Alice, before we conclude, Alice has this thought on your your haunting question about Jefferson's self contradictions and my accusation of false consciousness. Uh, Listen to this, uh, because I think this kind of brings the whole discussion of Jefferson to a close. At the end of his life, Jefferson opined that vanishing slavery from all America would not cost me a second thought, if, in that way, a general emancipation and expatriation could be effected. But, no workable plan for compensating owners and relocating the freed slaves had yet been devised. So, as it is, we have the wolf by the ears, Jefferson wrote, and we can neither hold him nor safely let him go. So, race-based slavery was an intolerable and insoluble dilemma. Quote, justice is in one scale, and self-preservation in the other, end quote. Jefferson's only consolation, as he concluded, would be that he would not live to weep over the waste of the American Revolution.
0: Yeah, you see throughout his letters, too, this conviction that there's no way that whites and blacks can coexist. So emancipation does also mean, as you said, um... <laughs> deportation essentially. And, and even later on, you know, when we get into the era of the civil war, the African nation of Liberia is, is invented as a potential solution to this problem. So the, the problem is not, as you said, it's not only the slavery problem, it's the fundamental question of different races, different colors coexisting with one another. But here too, I have to say, this is what maddening about Jefferson is that, um, he had enormous admiration for Native Americans and wrote quite extensively about them and you You see many places where he defends their their native genius, their intellect, their wisdom um their skillfulness to um other people of European extraction who are doubtful about it um and I found this one really painful passage where he's responding to someone who has um read about or spent time with natives in. South America, and who is not impressed with them. And he says, well, you know, they're very degraded, because they've been enslaved for 10 generations. So you can't expect them to be better. You know, who knows, (laughs) maybe, maybe our, our black slaves here would be capable of of intellect and moral strength you know if if after you know a few generations out of slavery they can pull themselves together um so he he kind of like has this awareness that um being enslaved is you know, mentally intellectually spiritually destructive of the slaves and infantilizing and um so that's why you can't just you know release them out into to freedom because they can't cope with it but every minute of every day is keeping them in a condition that, you know, in his mind makes them unfit. And so, (laughs) yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Oh, yes. So what happens after Jefferson's death in 1826 and the rise of Abraham Lincoln uh, to leadership in the uh, uh, newly formed Republican party Uh, after the demise of the Whigs in the 1850s, we have to mention here is the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was a revival that spread all across the country, but it primarily originated in Yankee, New England, uh, in the regions where Sam Adams, previously mentioned, was active. And out of the Second Great Awakening came the abolitionist movement. Uh, This needs to be acknowledged. This is a a religious phenomenon that Jefferson would not have dealt with or been uh, familiar with, uh, at least in his lifetime, to pay much attention to or derive any benefit from. But the Second Great Awakening was the spiritual fire Uh, that uh, uh, started the abolitionist movement and the agitation to uh, uh, end the uh, uh, slave trade and to uh, 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 stop the expansion of slavery into new new territories.
0: Right. So that will be our, our bridge into our next episode where we will look to a president who was able to bring more uh, religious depth to bear on the problem facing the nation, but not at all in a straightforward way. And that will be Abraham Lincoln, theologian. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.